I'll be reading two passages this morning. Uh, the first is in Acts, and then the second is in Hebrews. Um, first will be Acts 28, verses 30 through 31, and that's on page 1706 of the Pew Bible. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Next will be Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, and that's on page 1835. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? Thanks, Radhika. Hey, everybody. So this is the last um, message in the Unshakable Faith series, which um, took us through the last eight chapters of Acts, but it's also the last sermon in a much longer Acts series that we've been in for over a year with a couple of breaks. And um, yeah, it's been so great. So um, yeah, I've really, it's been really great for me. Anyway, I hope it was good for you. Um, so we went through the last eight chapters of Acts and look at um, seven things that lead to a really unshakable faith, no matter what happens. And I want to bring Acts to a conclusion. And so w one of the things that I think is really interesting about the ending of Acts is that it just sort of stops. Um... And what we're supposed to take from this, I think, if you read through the whole book of Acts, especially if you read all of Luke and then all of Acts right after it, that the idea that we're supposed to get from it is that we are actually here to run the same race that we saw this new thing called the church run in Acts 1 through 28, and that we are Acts 29. And everybody from 
the end of Acts to the present until the return of Jesus is this, what Malcolm Muggeridge called the Third Testament, a, another era of God's saving work that he'd led up to for a very long period of time. And we in this generation, you and I, while we live in this place, we have to run the race that, that they ran to make Jesus known and to show Jesus with how we live in faith and faithfulness. And we have to accept that we, we are Acts 29. There's no one else that's here to be this. One of the things that's always kind of puzzled me about the end of Acts is how it ends. I always kind of figured that it probably should end with the martyrdom of Peter and Paul. And most people read this and they see that Paul's in prison at the end of Acts 28, and they know that um, Paul was martyred in Rome, and he's in prison in Rome, and so they figure, well, the end is basically that Paul is killed, is, is beheaded, and so, you know, why end on a downer? Right? But that's actually not what happens. What happens is that Paul eventually um, gets his case heard. He's exonerated and cleared of all charges. He is released. He lives five more years, has a number of more missionary adventures, and then only five years later does Nero imprison and kill him, not because he broke some kind of law, but that he just was trying to kill a lot of Christians to try to really, really, really make clear to the Roman people that he did not set the city on fire. Right? He just thought it was poetic to recite something from the fall of Troy while he watched the city burn, which isn't the same thing as setting it on fire, so it must have been the Christians, right? Now, I mean, I've always wished that Acts was longer. I mean, in terms of a church series, maybe you don't, but I mean, I, I would have loved to have get, to gotten like nine more chapters on Paul's fifth missionary journey, right? He says in Romans that he is dead set on going to Spain. He says he's always wanted to preach the gospel where the gospel is unknown. So though he, we know he went and visited some churches in Asia Minor and in Greece, we know that he wanted to spend whatever years he had left going to places he'd never been, and first on his list was Spain. And of course, once you get to Spain and you get to the other side of the Iberian Peninsula, it's only 21 more miles to Britain. And by this period in the Roman Empire, Julius Caesar in 52, I think, BC, had already taken over southern England, and so England was already known. It was referred to as the islands, and in Isaiah, Isaiah, it says that the Messiah would come, and it was too small a thing to just redeem Israel, but that the gospel would go to the islands, and that's not what Isaiah meant, probably, Britain. Britain would be among all the islands in most furthest places in the world, and so, I don't know if you know this, but in London, St. Paul's Church is where St. Paul's Church is because of a long tradition that Paul preached on that hill to a number of British tribes. In fact, Clement, the second bishop of Rome, said that Paul went to the uttermost ends of the earth, which in that time, in Roman culture, was no question Britain. But we don't know any of this. We don't know what he did in Spain. He could have gone to Japan. We, I mean, we, we do, five years, you can get, get a lot of places if you're Paul. <laughs> There's a lot of scholars that actually believe that um, Luke stops here in Acts 28 because there was going to be another book of Acts. That he was, he was actually planning a whole other book. And we know that Luke didn't die because at the end of 2 Timothy, at the end of Paul's second in prison, he says the only person that's still with him is Luke. So Luke's there. He's got Paul. They're not doing much else. <clears throat> and so you're kind of like, oh, man, it would be so awesome. But here's the problem with that. At some point, Luke's got to stop writing. The book of Acts isn't going to end. The acts of the Holy Spirit in the church bringing the gospel to all people through all people who will believe is something that transcends Peter and Paul 
and all of the Christians of the book of Acts. It transcends the Jerusalem church. It transcends the Antiochian church. It transcends everything that we've seen, and it, it goes out, and it becomes a whole new movement that goes all over the world, and you just can't, you just can't write enough books. And we are meant to understand that that church, that movement of the Holy Spirit, that outgoing of the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth, as Isaiah says, to the furthest islands, it is still literally exactly the same thing that's happening right now. We exist in the exact same redemptive era of the activity of God as Acts 28, when this book closes. The Christians that it speaks about, we share their, not just their common humanity, but their faith in the same God, in the same Christ, in the exact same event of redemption, in the exact same Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is giving similar gifts to the same church for the same purpose, with the same mission, glorifying the same Jesus, exactly the same, and human nature has not changed one iota in 2,000 years. Our technology has changed quite a bit. Nice shirt. But human nature, our need, what redemption looks like for us has not changed at all. This week, um, <clears throat> we, we celebrated um, St. Patrick's Day, who is the patron saint of beer and milkshakes, apparently. <clears throat> but just like St. Valentine, cult our culture has enormously cheapened an incredible story. Um, Valentine's a great story. We'll do that a different time. Um, Patrick was a, um, a Roman of, of British ancestry, but his family was in Rome. His grandfather was a pastor. His father was a deacon, so of course he was a rebellious, atheistic 16-year-old. And he got himself captured by pirates, right? Captured by pirates is good. And then he was sold into slavery in, in Ireland because that was outside of Rome. So he could be, as a Roman, where do you sell Roman citizens into slavery? You can't sell Roman citizens into slavery in a Roman province, so Ireland's perfect. And so he was sold into slavery in Ireland, and he was a slave there for something like six years, from like 16 to 22 or 23. And it was there with no preacher, no church, no one else in his life that he came to Jesus. And he said to survive the cold and the rain and the personal torture of just hanging out with sheep and those really shaggy cows, that he would pray sometimes a hundred times a day and a hundred times a night. And then one night he had, a, he had a dream where God said that there was a boat waiting to take him to Rome, and it was only 200 miles away if he had the, go, the guts to go find it and get on it. And so he did. He ran. He traveled all the way across Ireland. He found this boat. It was a bunch of sailors that had run out of food and were like kind of stuck in this cove. And so he prayed that God would bring food. And this group of like half feral pigs apparently ran at them. And they like were like, oh, God made bacon. And so they brought these pigs on the boat and they sailed back to Rome and he's safe. And he goes to seminary and he becomes a priest. And he's coming up in the center of the church in Rome with all of its, because now it was like 390. Now Christianity's the thing in Rome. It's like the cool thing and everybody's doing it. And he could become a bishop and then God comes to him in a dream and he says, I want you to go to Ireland. I want to go back to the people who enslaved you. And so he came up with this great idea. 
He took all of the land that belonged to his family, and he sold all of it. His family was a merchant family. They were quite wealthy. And he took these big piles of money, and he sailed back to Ireland. And, okay, you need to understand that Ireland at this point culturally was the armpit of the world. I mean, it was literally the worst—you make up the worst possible culture you can imagine. And this was Ireland at the time. I mean, just, there weren't families. People just did whatever they wanted with whoever—the kids just kind of ran around. They, they would have orgies before battle, before getting drugged and drunk and run screaming naked into battle, painted with blue paint, attempting to appear demon-possessed. I mean, we're the only peoples in the world, basically, that could scare Roman armies. Okay, I mean, these people were buck nuts crazy. Okay? And, th- and there were no rules. Functionally, they had, there was no city in all of Ireland. There was no capacity for organization among the people as a whole. Zero. There were just 150 tribes. The only thing they did together was fight Romans. That's it. They're like, oh, battle, we'll get together for that, right? And this is what he, so what he does is he takes this pile of money and he goes to the chief and he, he's like, how much money do you want me to pay you so I can preach about Jesus and people don't kill me while I'm among your tribe? And the guy's like, well, this much. And so he goes, okay, and pays him. And then he preaches the gospel in that tribe and leads people to Jesus and builds some very un-Roman church. And then he moves on and pays the next guy and uses all of the accumulated wealth of his family for generations just to buy a hearing for Jesus. Builds 700 churches, leads thousands of people to Jesus, trains more than a thousand pastors before he dies in his 70s. It transforms the culture, not just of Ireland, but of Christianity, because up until that point, Christianity was, there was only Romanism. But when, um, When Patrick came into these lands, he recognized that in every culture, even the worst culture in the world, there were signs of common grace. And so he looked very hard at this really wacky group of people and drew out of them all of their strengths and bound them together with the gospel and his preaching and theology and produced this thing called Celtic Christianity, which then produced a monastic movement that held the learning of Western civilization in its monasteries while Byzantium fell apart and Rome fell apart in the age of barbarians until these texts could come back into the world and re-civilize Europe. It's kind of ironic that the most uncivilized people in the history of Europe became the culture bearers for Europe when it became a horde of barbarians because of one dude who was a slave who believed the gospel, sold everything, and gave everything to give himself to that culture and to that people. But there's, there's hundreds of Patricks in the history of the church. Hundreds of them. People who fought the good fight everywhere for all kinds of different reasons in all kinds of different ways. But the thing is, is that it's actually not just these people. Because every Christian participated in this. No great movement of Christianity, or very few, can be attributed to only one person. The leaders, especially in the early part of Christianity, have not been the fundamental carriers of the, of the weight, and therefore creating the hearing for the gospel. In the earliest centuries, it was the Christians who didn't leave when the plague hit, and, and nursed their pagan neighbors even when their own husbands and wives left them because they didn't want to die of the plague. That's how Christianity won the early cities. Because Christians risked their lives for their neighbors who weren't Christians even when their own family wouldn't. 
And all the way through, one of, the, one of my favorite examples of this is the Guinness family, because it sort of relates to St. Patrick. Um, a couple of centuries ago, the Guinness family um, were devout Reformed Christians, and they, the greatest social trouble on their heart was that children were dying of dysentery and malnutrition. I think it was in southern Scotland that the family was, but I'm not sure exactly. And um, they, there wasn't good enough water filtration to produce water that was good enough for kids to drink so they wouldn't die of dysentery. And yet the diet that they had in that area of the Isles at the time was just not vitamin-rich enough to produce what was necessary for kids to properly develop. And so they created a drink that would do both that would cause kids not to die of dysentery because it was disinfected enough that kids could drink it and not get sick, but that was vitamin and nutrient-rich enough to be a supplement to their diet so they wouldn't suffer and die from this kind of malnutrition. Hence, we get Guinness beer. It's literally why it was, it was a bit thicker back then, which is a little hard to imagine, but it was. It was kind of it was like a syrup almost, but it was beer, and it was created for the glory of God. And you can, I mean, you can go through all of the history of the world to pe the people who invented all kinds of things. Saddles and stirrups for horses and wheel things that turned, and engineers and bankers and priests and mothers and people who dared to create Christian families and to build little stone churches and to, do all, to give alms to the poor, to build and to fund and to care for people in the first hospitals that were created by Christians and to fight against people who wanted to enslave whole nations and... There are, there's all of these people throughout 2,000 years of Christianity who've done all of these things, and some were leaders, most were not. And all of them, up until this moment, including you, are Acts 29. We are Acts 29. And we, as a local church, as individual people, as part of the church in the whole world, have to recognize that. One of the verses that was explicitly written to explain to us what it was going to look like for us to be the church in the world is this, is this passage in Hebrews 12. It's designed to tell us what it means to be Acts 29. And there's four main things in it that the author tells us have to happen for us to be that church that we have to commit ourselves to. Or it's just, it doesn't work. We're not, we won't look like Acts 1 through 28. We could look like Acts 1 through 28. Your life could look like Acts 1, 28, 1 through 28. And I'm not saying like all the super sexy parts. Remember, Acts 1 through 28 is like 30 years. So there's a lot of really fun stuff that's crammed together, but there were a lot of decades lived in between all those fun things that happened where people just loved Jesus and made dinner. Right? Let's look at those four things. One of them is... Um, in the first verse there, throw off everything that hinders us. So the first verse in, Matt, in Hebrews 12 is, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and run with perseverance the race that's been marked out for us. The first thing is to throw off everything that hinders us. To be, to be Acts 29, to run the race that's been put in front of us, we have to be incredibly committed to throwing off everything that hinders us. Um, one of the reasons why a runner metaphor I think is really good here is if you look at a group of people that are running a marathon, one of the things that's pretty conspicuous about them is not what is there, but what isn't there, right? What do you not see, right? Backpacks, 
wallets, keys, I mean, nothing. I mean, these, these people wear shoes, socks, ridiculously short shorts with slits up the side because they don't want their quad to have to stress against fabric hanging all the way down to here. <laughs> right? And then, you know, some kind of little tank top if they, right? It's, I mean, they wouldn't wear that little paper number if they didn't have to. Um, and all, all runners are like this. In fact, um, so helpful is the metaphor of running light. In the ancient world, actually, to compete in the, any of the Greek and Roman races, you had to run naked. No shoes, no nothing. In fact, in one of the books of the Corinthian correspondence, Paul talks about people who have been circumcised and people who become, become uncircumcised after they've been— now, don't wrap your imagination around that one. But there, were, there was actually a procedure in the ancient world to take somebody who was circumcised and get, make them uncircumcised again because in Roman and Greek culture, you couldn't run if you were mutilated, if you were a Jew. And so there's some people who wanted to compete athletically and had themselves uncircumcised, right? Because everybody ran naked. Now, you, now talk about that for lean, right? You're not carrying a lot of stuff. I mean, I, I don't know where you put even your, your key to get back in the house. You know, you just, it, it's totally, and that, this, make no mistake, this is the picture we're given about running after Jesus. Now, um, the reason this is important is because a lot of people really believe that God has made all these rules and there's hardly anything left to our own volition. If we really obey all God's crazy rules, we won't be allowed to do anything. And isn't that terrible? That's actually not true. Um, the worst thing God could, could have done is told us that we had, there were five things we could do and that was it. Freedom is to be being told only the things you can't do, and everything else is permissible. In the Bible, in the New Testament, if you look at all the things that are carried forward from the Old Testament into the New Covenant, and all of the commands of the New Testament, you take everything that could possibly be seen as an imperative, and you add it all together, it's about 1,050 laws, and that is generously counting. Now, that may sound like a lot until you really think through life and realize there's something like 52 million-ish things that therefore are not covered. And the question is, that's most of life. What do you do with that stuff? And the, the gospel creates an enormous amount of freedom. So there's an enormous amount of things in every person's life and in every Christian's life that are permissible. So what do you do? And there's, there's two places in the Bible that give fairly clear criteria for how you could think through what we should do or not do or how much we should do it that's permissible. The one is in 1 Corinthians where the Apostle Paul says, you guys say everything is permissible in the gospel. And he says, but not everything is beneficial. And there are things that are permissible that will get mastery over you. And so you need to think about that when you decide what's really permissible. Right? But also in this passage, it says anything that hinders, anything that hinders you. Now, you start to think that through in terms of godliness and what that looks like and what we do that's perfectly permissible, but that really does hinder us from running the race that's been marked out for us. And that will haunt you in a good way. It, it will put, it'll categorize like how much TV you should watch very differently than maybe before. Right? Because you'll say, should I watch this? Well, one, is it permissible? Is it, like, not porn? Right? Two, is it beneficial? Like, is the, is the content so bad that it's, like, treason to watch this? Or is it, is it all right? But then that's not—you're not done. Then the question is, do I need to spend—is it okay to spend this time staring at this flickering screen? 
right? We pick on young people a lot for their TV habits, and we should, because almost everybody has idiotic TV habits. But listen, I don't know if you know this. The average senior watches seven hours of television today, and they think it's okay because they're watching Bonanza. Right? Because they're watching the rerun show of some relatively wholesome thing where something non-licentious is happening, you know, that it's cool to burn seven hours of your life a day while God has still given you life because what you're watching is permissible and, and, and relatively beneficial in its content. It's still an enormous hindrance to spending your life loving your neighbor. And I know it's going to happen this summer when I say, hey, we're ready to do one of our local partnerships. One of the things we're going to do is we're going to provide tutorship to Oak Ridge School. We're going to become reading tutors. And I know people are going to tell me, I don't have time for that. I know people are going to tell me, my life is really busy, blah, blah, blah. I read a study recently that work hours are up for Americans by 12 minutes. That's, we're working a lot harder. 12 minutes. And yet our TV watching continues to increase. We're so busy. The fact is, is that there are tons of things in your life that are permissible under the gospel. Chocolate ice cream is permissible. Right? And to a certain extent may be beneficial. But it could also become a hindrance to all kinds of things. For example, if you're not supposed to eat it because you're bored or annoyed or depressed, you're supposed to bear the annoyance, anger, or depression and deal with it with the gospel. If you self-medicate with chocolate ice cream or heroin, it's— you're not actually engaging in the discipline of the gospel that is meant to change and build you. And so the two scoops of chocolate ice cream that are beneficial maybe in the amount that you're eating that week and maybe totally permissible in its existence in your duty as a Wisconsinite to purchase and eat it, it is still perhaps a real hindrance to running the race marked out for you. And if you begin to think in terms of the gospel makes almost so much permissible. There's so much freedom. And being godly is being a strong enough and wise enough and truthful enough person to bear beautifully that much freedom. And we learn how to do it by asking the question, is it beneficial? And based on the race marked out for me, is it a hindrance? The second thing is um, to throw off everything that entangles, every sin that entangles. And just in case you're wondering if the sin you're thinking about entangles, that's all of them. Okay? It's a generic reference to sin, and it's very entangling. And it's, it's, it's one thing to say that you're all ready to go for a run. Oops. And then it's, it's not helpful if you're otherwise ready and you tie your shoelaces together. And listen, you can, you can tell me that it's somehow beneficial to running to tying your shoelace together. Like, I have people say this to me all the time as a pastor, how there's something the Bible says so clearly is treason against God. It's absolutely sin. It's a perversion of human nature, and they are going to do it anyway, and they are going to tell me why. It's totally fine. And it's kind of like explaining, I'm going to go for a run, and I tied my shoelaces together because— I I don't know if you know this pastor because you're not as good at me at this, but every time you take a step, it tightens your shoes. <laughs> like there are real benefits to this. I don't think God understands. 
It's, it's 2016. And, you know, you have to try to be gentle with people like that, but for heaven's sake, like, God knows what is consummate with human nature. And human nature has not changed in 2,000 years. And we still are bound and entangled in and tripped up by the same things. And if you want to run the race that's marked out for you, if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to be what you were meant to be, if you want to live true humanity like Jesus, then you've got to tie your shoes independently and stop thinking that God's fences are what's binding you and begin to realize that it is your sin that is entangling you. And once you realize that, you'll begin to realize why the concept of throwing something off is supposed to be a profoundly aggressive idea, right? I mean, he doesn't say, simply remove. I mean, you need to picture, like, somebody who, it's their first time at summer camp, and they're terrified of spiders, and they wake up with one on their face. Okay? You just can't get it off you fast enough. Right? That is the picture here. In the book of Romans, Romans 8, 13, it says that if we live according to the sinful nature, we will die. But if by the Spirit, that is, not by simple effort, but by believing the gospel, realizing who we're meant to be, receiving the empowering strength of the Holy Spirit, if in that we put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Now listen, that is very intentional execution language there. That is, strangle it to death with your bare hands. That's not this remote picture of like, you can take it out with a sniper rifle and you won't have to get any blood on you. No, it is up close and personal. Listen, I have been, I grew up rural. I've been a hunter and a fisherman my whole life. I've killed a lot of living things. And I always want to punch hunters that shoot something and then like cheer right after they've killed it. I always want to, because death is never pretty. It's just the cost of eating stuff. And I've had to kill stuff really up close and personal. And it is always a little weird, and you'd better have the gumption to do it if you're going to do it, because nobody wants to get killed halfway. Um, If you farm enough, you end up in a situation where you have to put something out of its misery. And you had better believe that that has to be done, because it's going to be a pretty gruesome thing. And the the reason I tell you this is not to, like, gross you out a certain amount of time before lunch. The, The reason I'm telling you this is that you cannot approach the hindrances to our discipleship, or the sins that entangle us casually. You, you, you can't do it with just a little bit of, a little bit of internal conviction. You, you've got to be ready to kill something. There has to be a level of divine and spiritually motivated brutality exerted against your sin and against the permissible things that are stealing your life away. You have to be so angry about it on a certain level and so ashamed of how it's diminishing you and how much you want to glorify Jesus with your time and your effort and with your life and with your days and with your roles and with your responsibilities that you would actually come to the thing ready to take care of business, right? Um, I'm not so old yet that young guys won't come to talk to me about their pornography problem. And there's a question I always ask them right after a young guy tells me that they have a pornography problem. Right after, I say this. 
okay, I'm not surprised. I love you. I try to say all kinds of gracious things, and, I, and then this is the question. How far are you willing to go to overcome this? How far are you willing to go? How much humiliation will you accept? How much oversight? How much loss of your privacy? Are you willing to throw everything that you own that has a screen into Lake Mendota if that's what it takes? And if the answer is no, I can't help you. Because you're dealing with too entangling, too enticing, too powerful a sin rooted too deeply in your sinful and human nature for you to escape if you're not willing to kill everything that it takes. And it's not that I don't have time for you. It's not that I don't love you. I just can't help you. And that is true about a lot of things. And we are kidding ourselves if we think we're going to run the race, if we're going to be the Acts 29 church, if we're not willing to go that far. Now, we're not meant to do it just by, like, being stronger. The very next verse says how we're supposed to do it. And he says, he says the only way you're going to be able to do this is if you fix your eyes on Jesus. If you look at Christ and you see the worth, that he's worth more than those hours in front of the television or in front of YouTube or the screen, or flipping nervously on something on your phone, moving pictures that don't matter, or eating, or gossiping, or being lazy, or overworking, or whatever it is, whatever the idol is, there is something better than that thing, more beautiful, truer, more honorable, more deeply human, and more completely divine, more pleasurable when you have a taste for it than any of those things. And it is Jesus. It is the Christ whom you are chasing. It is the one crucified and risen for you. It is the Savior of all things. It is the only complete—he is the only complete truth-teller in all of creation. And he has given himself to you in, in the humiliation of his death and the beauty of his resurrection. And when you really see that, then throwing things off is not as hard as you imagine it right now. Um, I hate running, and I think track is one of the, is the worst sport that in the, any sport that involves running. Um, and you're, when you're not chasing a thing or a person, I just don't like—that doesn't mean you can't like it. I recognize there's taste involved. Okay? It's fine. But my, I play sports to become less angry, and running just makes me more angry. In basketball, I get to hit people. That's <laughs> all. So, and so, um, but I did run track for a couple years in my junior high years because girls were on the girl track team. And so I ran distance, but in seventh grade, distance is like a mile. Um, but we ran, we ran multiple miles because I would run with the varsity runners, right? And there are three things I learned about running. One is your emotions are your greatest limitation. Because your emotions will always start creating relatively reasonable, idiotic excuses for why you should stop running or not run as hard about 14 steps, depending on how out of shape you are. So if I go running now, it's about—I don't even get out of the cul-de-sac before my mind is like, do we have to do this? You're doing fine. Your heart rate's already up, you know? Um, when I was 17, I mean, it wouldn't, it wouldn't ever say that because I was playing three sports and I'd probably run, I don't know, 100 miles a week in all the different sports I was playing. So my emotions just shut up about that. But your, your, your emotions are always the weakest part of what you can actually do, right? The second thing is, is that you don't ever look away from the race. What's happening in the stands, what's going on around you does not matter. 
It does not matter if that girl came to watch you or if your mommy's there or if they have sodas at the whatever stand or if, if most of the people are cheering for your opponent. None of that matters. All that matters is what is right in front of you and who you are catching or who you are blowing away. In fact, good, really good runners, oftentimes when they win, win races and they, they get interviewed about what was, like, did you hear the crowd was really supporting you? Even people, like, you know, from Ohio State were cheering for you because you, you were such an underdog in this race. And they would be like, I, I don't know what you mean. Because they didn't hear that. Because they were working so hard, they had lost so much energy, the only thing they were holding on to in the tunnel vision of their concentration was finishing, chasing, winning, going. That's it. There's nothing else relevant. And the last thing is, you always run better when you're chasing somebody. You always learn to run better. You always become stronger when you run with somebody stronger than you. So the first thing my modified coach did was say, see the varsity guys, go run with them. And they'll be annoyed at you and try to leave you in the dust because you're in seventh grade. Catch them. Right? So I'd cut across the track. When you understand that basic, these basic, you begin to realize what it would mean to fix your eyes on Jesus and to chase him and to follow him and to run with him and to try to catch him. If you, if you look to anything else, even if you even look to a Christian mentor, I know too many people that have looked to Christian mentors and when their Christian mentor imploded, so did their faith. It's okay to look at a godly person and to pattern your faith somewhat after theirs, but you had better be looking through and beyond them to Jesus and being testing how much they mirror Jesus as you look to Jesus when you look at them. So, so that if they go down, you're still chasing the, head guy, the lead guy. And it does not matter what the culture is saying about you. It doesn't matter. In some cultures, people have cheered for Christians. There are some moments in which people might commend you for being a Christian. Other times they'll be booing you, and you had you better shut that out. Because their praise doesn't matter anyway. You're, ch you're chasing the only person who's worth listening to. And the fact is that the verse starts with something very clear. There's a lot of people cheering for you. You just can't hear them in your present state. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses— the motivation there is not just the incredible joy of chasing Jesus. It is also that even though you can't hear it, there are stands above stands above stands above stands of people who see you as people who have carried the baton in the race they gave their life to run, and you are running the next lap of it. And they are personally, eternally connected with how you live tomorrow at work. And in some meaningful sense, they see or they know what's going on, and they are cheering that you would throw off every hindrance and all entanglements, and you would chase Jesus. And that you would find the motivation to overcome the emotions that come in by not just fixing your eye on Jesus, but specifically on Jesus' enduring victory over everything that came against him to convince him he didn't need to do what he needed to do. That is, you fix your eyes on Jesus, the author of perfect of our faith. That it is not just on Jesus, but on Jesus in his death and resurrection. His authoring of our faith, his creating of the gospel, his overcoming everything that stood against him, him crossing the finish line, and him putting in the place of victory, being seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It is seeing Jesus in that that you can believe that you can finish, that you can tell the emotions that you shouldn't be listening to, to shut their mouths. Emotions are a great thing, 
but you'd better have a mind that is discerning whether or not to give yourself to them or not to. There's some emotions you should totally give yourself to. There's some emotions you should give yourself to in a very restricted way. And there's some emotions you should say, that is a lie, get behind me, I'm running this way. Even for the most analytical people that there are that don't like to feel emotional, your emotions are still at least a sensor for things you can't otherwise perceive. God has created you to be more than a brain. But you'd better have a way to defeat the ones that would defeat you, that are coming more from your sinful nature than the divine image. And lastly, the fourth thing is to endure all hardship is discipline. There's a lot of people that look at the, the verses about discipline and fatherhood and God treating us as children as like a different passage that should be a different sermon. It is totally part of these first three verses. It says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, right before that, the verse right before that talked about Jesus fighting against sinners— and that they put him to death. And then it says, you have not yet struggled against sin. Usually, oftentimes, what we think that must mean is, is that being polite when people are idiots is so hard that if we're godly about it, blood is going to shoot out of our eyes, and we're going to shed blood fighting against sin. Okay? But that's not actually what happens. That is a direct reference to sinful people chose to be sinful outside of Jesus, and they persecuted, shamed, and killed Jesus. And it says earlier in Hebrews that these people who he was writing to had already been fired, attacked publicly, had their belongings and homes taken from them. They just hadn't bled yet. And he said, you haven't resisted external sinners attacking you personally and treating you with oppressive injustice to the point of bleeding yet. You're not even doing, you're not even suffering on a varsity level. And you're already emotionally in turmoil. He's basically saying, you need to be a lot tougher than this. And he, and he says, here's why you're feeling this way. He says, because you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. And so you're ready for like the really encouraging verse, right? He's like, listen, you're suffering, and I realize this, and you're hurting, and so on, and you, you've forgotten this incredible encouragement that God gives when he treats you as sons and daughters. And here's what it is. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Isn't that heartwarming? You're going to make it. You're going to make it. God bless you. Hugs? Right? We do after-service hugs. That'd be good. Um, the, the, so the idea, obviously, here, right, is he's saying, listen, all of these hardships that you're suffering is actually evidence of God treating you as his children. It means you're his children. Isn't that great? You're like, that's not as great as I would like it to be. And part of the reason for that is, is that it's very easily misunderstood because when we use the word discipline, we tend to use it reductively. And so I, I'll say discipline like, so I had to discipline one of my kids today, right? What do I mean? It means I had to punish one of my kids for doing something idiotic, right? And the thing is, is that that's actually not what discipline means in this context. And it's very easy to get that wrong because discipline is used in parallel to rebuke. 
And so it's very easy to believe that this is synonymous parallelism, that rebuke and discipline are referring to the same thing, so it's referring to rebuking or, or punishing forms of discipline because it says rebuke. But it's not. It's using a larger category and then a more specific category in parallel. So all punishment, when given by a father or a mother rightly, is punitive, but it also is given with the intention that the person would realize that they're wrong, repent, turn around, say, I don't want to be wicked. I want to have faith and trust in God, and that, that it would bring them into something better. But actually, everything that makes you tougher, more able to deal with the real hardships, and what forms you into the person you're supposed to be, all of that's discipline. So if your dad says, you did such and such, you're grounded, that's punishment, which is discipline. If your dad says, listen, I ain't buying you a car when you turn 13 or 16. I don't care what your friends buy you. You want a car? You need to earn some money. Can I help you talk to the neighbors to mow lawns or something? That's not punishment. It is discipline. When a coach tells a team on Monday morning practice, everybody on the line were running wind sprints. He could be doing it because they were terrible on Saturday, and he was personally embarrassed, and they embarrassed their school, and they need to run wind sprints as punishment because they don't have the discipline or the pride in their team to play as hard as they can when they're supposed to. Or it could be they're going to play a really good team in two weeks, and they need to be in incredibly good shape because that team presses the whole game. The exact same thing they have to do. Totally different reasons. They're both discipline. Only one is punishment. And so what this verse is saying is, is that you and I should accept every hardship that hits us, every single one, as discipline. It might be punishment. Might not be. In fact, you might even be able to say it probably isn't. But it's discipline. It's meant, it can be used by God if you combine it with faith to make you either tougher, deeper, or more the everlasting being you are meant to be. You see, we don't think that it's good discipline because we're dying, losing our hopes, losing our money, losing the things we want, and so we don't see the benefit of—we're like, this is not a helpful discipline. It's kind of like when you're disciplining your kids, and they really—you're like, look, I promise you this is for your good, and they're like, no, it isn't. You're just mean. Okay, but the reality is, is that God is a better parent than even if they're right about you and me. Everything he will do, he will utilize to make us the everlasting being of true humanity remade through the power of Christ, the fully reformed image of God in us, empowered by the Holy Spirit, belonging to him forever. That is what he's creating. And therefore, it doesn't have to make you healthier, wealthier, or freer, or your life easier. It has to make you better prepared for the reality of eternity. And I know that you, you might be hearing this, and you might think, okay, literally, like, all hardship. Like, this is a world, Nick, in which there are girls sold into sex trafficking, and there is slavery, and there is—listen, this was written in an empire where something like 60% of the people were slaves. This was written to a place where women were not treated particularly well. This was written in a place where sex trafficking was much more widely practiced than it is right now. This was written in a place where some of the most dehumanizing things were just normal life. Things that get our blood boiling, things that make the news were just Tuesday in the world this was written in. 
And so when I say that, I don't say it glibly, just as the author of Hebrews does not say this glibly. And I think that's true for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that everything, when received with faith, has the capacity to produce something profound in human beings. Um, there's lots of examples of this in the sense of it's simply a reality of human life that in some of the most dehumanizing moments of human history, some of the greatest humans have emerged from them, forged in those things specifically. And they said in their writings and in their speaking and in their lives that they never could have been that person. Um, a non-Christian example would be Viktor Frankl. Right? It's a Jewish psychotherapist from Germany sent to concentration camps. His wife was killed. I don't remember if they had children or not, but if they were, they were killed. Um, and it was when all meaning was stripped away, all humanity was stripped away, people acted in the most inhuman way possible so that he had one of the greatest psychological realizations of the 20th century, that people shouldn't be treated on the basis of their neurosis, but on the basis of their meaning. Because even in the concentration camp, a human being could find meaning. Humans were meaning creatures. And instead of focusing on how people have hurt you, focus moving forward on the basis of the meaning of your life became a revolution in psychotherapy in the 20th century. Not nearly as much as it should have been. Corey Ten Boom is a great example of this, right? This is a woman who watched her sister get sick and die right next to her in a concentration camp, who led hundreds of women of faith, started a movement of people abused by the Nazis forgiving their Nazi captors and healing relationships in the Netherlands and all over Europe and speaking of the absolute reconciling power of Christ everywhere. Maximilian Kolbe steps forward at a concentration camp when a guy cries out that he's going to be killed because he has a wife and children. He says, I'm a single priest. I believe in Jesus. I believe in an eternity. This place can't take that from me. Kill me instead. Millions of Europeans have heard his name and revere his memory. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, one of the greatest writers against the horrors of 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s socialism and communism in Europe, um, found some of the greatest realizations of his writings in the fires of the gulags. And you could go on and on and on with this. A lot of Martin Luther King's writings was forged in how he was treated in the train yards in Georgia. And so, it, it, I'm, I'm not saying it glibly, that literally the most dehumanizing lot can, when combined with faith, be received as discipline and produce spiritual greatness. That when combined with the joy set before us in Jesus, can empower us with the kind of strength that throws off both all hindrances and all entangling sins. Like dust. One of the most um, interesting verses in this passage is where it says that we should fix our eyes on Jesus who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, and then that line, scorning its shame, or more literally, shaming the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. 
Um, we live in a culture in which it is assumed that all shame is bad, and that is ridiculously foolish. Um, shame is a perfectly healthy human emotion when you deserve to feel it, and it is a deeply constructive emotion when you handle it properly. And it should produce one of two things. Either if it's shame that you deserve, then it should empower your moral conscience. It should, you should feel the shame, and what it should bring you to is repentance. And you should say, yes, in doing that, I was acting in a profoundly evil way. I am evil not to care about what's good and true. Sorry, that doesn't show up very well. I am evil not to care about what's good and true. I don't want to be evil. This shame that I'm feeling is the proper emotion and the right response of people around me, and I need to change. I need to ask for forgiveness. I need to seek to create restitution. I need to throw off this sin that wants to entangle and poison my soul. And shame then becomes the most therapeutic, the most healing, and the most loving possible emotion, response, reaction, or thing placed on you by others that there could possibly be. If you have a friend, if you have friends that under no circumstances would exert shame upon you, they may be good friends, they just don't have a very straight spine. Or they're just morally confused and spiritually confused. But shame can also do a second thing, and that is this. It can empower your moral autonomy. Moral autonomy is when you will do what's right even if every single person won't. Moral autonomy is the person who will stand up to a dictator and get killed in the street with nobody backing him up and not giving a rat's patoot about it. To be completely unmoved by the pressures outside of us. Now let me, let me tell you something. Moral autonomy is the moral category that is almost entirely vacant from American culture. Moral reasoning, pretty bad. Moral understanding, moral empathy, they're not great. They've never been great. But moral autonomy is one of the things that America used to pride itself in. And you can hardly even find it in the church now. I'll be good as long as we're all going to be good together. But if you back out on me and I'm going to lose out, I'm not going to stand here holding the bag. That's the way we talk. That is not the way any New Testament Christian talked. That's not the way Paul and Peter talked. That's not the way Stephen talked. That's not the way Philip talked. That's not the way any Christian ever worth their salt in the faith talked. They had absolute moral autonomy. It doesn't matter what you think, what you're going to do, or what you're not going to do. I'm going to do what's right. And I'm unconfused about what that is. You see, shame, when it is not right shame, if you receive it and recognize that it is wrongly impugning you, the realization that comes to you is, I'm never going to earn their approval, and I should have never sought it in the first place, and the person whose approval I should be seeking is God's, and the thing I should cherish the most is what is right, good, true, and beautiful, revealed in the gospel, spoken in the scriptures, and that is what I should believe in. And why am I feeling ashamed because somebody puts something on me that I should never have believed in? It is when you realize you're never going to be loved in this culture. You're just going to have to love the culture and all of the people in it. 
You're never going to be approved of for righteousness. S people may approve of some of the righteousness of the gospel. No one will ever approve of all of it who doesn't believe the gospel. In any culture, go to any culture in the world at any time, and they will really like some of the things in the gospel, and they'll hate other things, and you have to believe in all of them. And you see, there is a, there's, shame can lead you out of sin, but it can also be another form of discipline where you realize, I don't have to, I'm not performing for you. So when Jesus was crucified, the shame, the cross was the mark of shame, of criminalhood, of rejection of the entire empire of Rome, all of the power, all of the people, everybody who is somebody, all of its laws, all of its grandeur, all of its writings, all of its laws, its senate, its forum, its legions, its armies, its ships, its money, everything came in on the cross, and the cross was the shame of all of it. All of it rejects you. You are nothing. And Jesus looked at that, and he said, I don't care. <laughs> His heart was so full of joy to redeem you, and to create his church, and to save humanity, and to please his Father, that all, every ounce of the shame of the entire world could be spit at him. And he just shamed the shame right back. He just says, nail me to this thing. It tells us more about you than it tells us about me. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. If you, if you believe in Jesus like he believed in Jesus, if you see Jesus for who he is, if you see the joy packaged into what you have been made a part of as his church running his race, yourself part of Acts 29, if you see that, you will be able to endure every hardship like it's discipline. You will be able to th throw off every sin that entangles you, and you will be able to throw off even the permissible things that are hindering you. But only when you see Jesus with that level of joy and when you open yourself fully to the Holy Spirit to apply those things and to lead you forward. And the only thing that requires is faith. You have to believe in Jesus and in his goodness and in his beauty and in his revealed truth. And if you give yourself fully to that, if you, take, if you throw off the hindrances inside your psyche towards it, and if you give yourself fully to what Christ wants to do in you and in us, there will be great cheering unheard to us in the present in a cloud of witnesses. And there will be great joy in the Christ who sits enthroned besides the Father, and we will be led to adventures and exploits and loves and redemption that we have not yet dreamed of. And there will be a lot of eating and drinking and making dinner in between some of those great things, and most of them will seem perfectly ordinary, but they will accomplish what Jesus has put us here to accomplish, and they will be marvelous. Let's pray and then close the singing together. Father, please help us 
to believe with every ounce of our being that we are just as much part of the present movement of you spiritually working in the world and redeeming all things that Acts 29 is, that we live in is just as dynamic, just as real, just as spiritual as the chapters that we read about that happened, happened 2,000 years ago. Help us to see through biography and church history and through our neighbors and mentors how powerful the work of your spirit still is. And help us all individually to come to a place where we throw off the sin and the hindrances and see the joy that is there in Christ and receive all hardship as discipline. And help us to become a people together that encourage each other and strengthen each other and lift each other up and help each other overcome things and run together in such a way as that we really become a church that when people look at us, they see Acts 29. Help us to run the race, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.